We're doing our Bible in a year preaching series, and that means we move really fast. So we've blazed from 2 Kings all the way to Daniel, picking up a a very um, popular um, story of courage. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 28, summarizing maybe a few of the verses. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, except for three individuals, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three Hebrew men who were exiles with their fellow Hebrews in Babylon. They refused to bow down. And we're going to move ahead to verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated at seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. And so these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the furnace so hot, and the furnace so hot, 
that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal officials crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Now, this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's very... It's a very popular one um, because we we admire the guts of those men. Um, but the story can also be a little maybe intimidating to us, maybe uh, make us a little inferior because uh, if you're if you're like me, you, you you think, well, what if I were standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar and hear his threats? would I have the courage to resist? Maybe I wouldn't in the moment. So here's the question I want to look at today. What gives us the courage to stand firm against threats and to do what is right? Um, And in order to to know where this courage comes from, we actually have to flip back one chapter, chapter 2 in the book of Daniel, because this, this image of gold that that Nebuchadnezzar uh, has formed, it's, um, it follows another image. He has a dream of another image, a similar image. And that's told about in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this very disturbing dream. He dreams of enormous statue. Um, likely, the statue in his dream is, is, is taller than the 90-foot statue that he has constructed. And, you know, 90 feet tall point of reference. Um, I thought of the, the statue of Sam Houston in Huntsville. You drive, big old statue of Sam Houston. That statue, including its base, is 77 feet tall. Um, so an extra 10 feet gives you the height of Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. And I imagine the one in his dream is even bigger than that. And in the, the statue in his dream uh, was made um, of multiple materials that had a head of, of pure gold. Uh, chest and arms were made of silver. The belly of the statue in his dream was made of bronze. Um, the, the, uh, the legs, um, at least the lower legs, made of, of iron 
And then the feet of the statue were made of a combination of, of iron and clay. And, um, and we're told through Daniel, the Hebrew man Daniel, that um, he interprets the dream. We're told that each section of this vision, the stat, section of the statue, represents a particular kingdom, a particular worldly kingdom. The dazzling gold head in the the dream, that's Nebuchadnezzar himself. That represents his kingdom. And then the different regions below, different kingdoms um, that would follow. And in in his dream, here's the disturbing part for Nebuchadnezzar, a rock. Uh, it said this rock that is not cut out by human hands. This rock hits the statue in the feet. So it couldn't have been that big of a rock because it just hit the feet of this statue. And you you might think that it would, you know, cause the statue maybe to tumble a bit, or you know, your your your, your child knocks over the block tower and it kind of, you know, crumbles to the ground. Well, that's what happens. But then the really disturbing part is it not just falls. The whole statue turns completely to dust and just blows away with the wind. And so Nebuchadnezzar is faced with this future that the dream foretells. He and his kingdom, along with the other worldly kingdoms to follow, will one day all be rendered just to dust by that little rock. Now, what does that rock represent? We're told it represents an eternal kingdom. Of course, God's kingdom. The eternal kingdom of God is going to reduce all these earthly kingdoms just to dust. And it's crucial for us to see what is Nebuchadnezzar's response to the dream. Well, and we know what that is. He has his own statue, the 90-foot statue of pure gold, erected as a monument of sorts. Um, now, one of the important verses in chapter 2 is verse 11. And the, the king's wise men respond to him. Now, they're responding to this really unreasonable request that Nebuchadnezzar gives them. If you want to know what that is, read chapter 2 it's in, in its entirety. But the end of their statement is very telling because what they do is they reveal um, the the kind of the standard thought in the Babylonian Empire at that time. So here's what the king's wise men say to him. Daniel 2, verse 11. Uh, what the king asks is too difficult, for no one can answer the king's request except for the gods. And they do not live among humans. See, that's the, the standard thought amongst the Babylonians, that the gods, they're nowhere to be found. They don't live among the humans, uh, among us humans. So think of Nebuchadnezzar. When you see in your mind's eye something that represents you and all of your work being turned to dust, (laughs) Um, what what will you do, particularly if your mindset is that there is no personal God, there is no God that dwells with you, and essentially you are all alone. And chapter 3 shows us what you will do if that's your mindset. Idolatry. 
you will make something else into the source of your stability, the source of your strength, the, the, the source that helps you sense that the world is in its proper order. So Nebuchadnezzar creates this golden statue to be worshipped. Now, there's no description of what that statue was of. could have been of his image. Uh, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, pretty narrow, you know, uh, not quite sure what it looked like. But whatever it, it looked like, we know what it represented. It represented Nebuchadnezzar's might as king of Babylon, him grasping for something solid that he could point to and say, look how big and strong and powerful I am. So let's talk about uh, the making of idols. And why do we uh, why do we make idols in the first place? And of course, I'm not talking about the, the the big golden statue idols, but other things instead. Well, one, um, we use idols to feel like we're in control. We use idols to feel like we're in control. In light of the dream that shows that he has no lasting control of the future, Nebuchadnezzar creates the idol to at least feel like he is in control. And I want you to notice how the storyteller scripts this story. Um, what, what, how does he describe this, this scene in chapter 3? Over and over again, he refers to the golden image, but it's not just the golden image that he refers to. Um, in verse 3, look at your, your story, and your, your scripture. Look, look at verse 3. It's the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. It's not just the image, but it's the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Verse 5, same thing. It's the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verses 7, 12, the same thing. It's the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You see that in your, in your scripture? And, and then Nebuchadnezzar finally confronts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want to put a couple of verses on the screen for you. Uh, verses 14 and, and 15. Do we have that? There we go. Here's verse 14. This is what Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and listen to what he says. Is it true that you do not worship the image of gold that I have set up? Verse 15. What, God? will be able to rescue from from my hand because King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to convince himself that he really is in control. So this is a man who is bent on control. Idolatry is what happens when you feel like you are all alone in the world without anyone there to lift you up. And so you think that, oh, well, I have to lift myself up then. Second thing that from the story that we see we use idols for, is we use idols to control our image. In light of his disturbing dream, Nebuchadnezzar thinks, I mean, I don't want to be seen as just any king and a succession of kings that ultimately go away. I, 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 want, to be, I want to stand out. I want to be known as a great king. And an idol can be anything that we use to Control the way that others see us. You know, what people can turn to as idols could be something about our performance, 
or our looks or our level of success or our likability. It could be one of several things that we turn to and we want to use to control the way that others think about us. We want to impress somehow. You know, I was thinking of Paul Hahnemann and his prayer and jets going on in the background. And that there probably isn't anyone in the room more than Paul that appreciates those jets in the air. Paul loves jets. Um, but that air show, uh, the Blue Angels that were practicing on Friday, I don't know if you got to see those, but when they were putting on a show, they were there to impress. And, and, um, and that's what we use idols for, to, to try to impress in, in kind of a manipulative way. See, turning to idols goes a bit beyond reasonably trying to make a good impression. There's desperation that idols reveal about what's going on in our hearts. We're desperate to be seen in a certain way. An idol is what I use to control my image when I don't really believe that I can trust God with my image, how others see me. And so we can think of uh, the citizens of the ancient city of Babel, where the, the citizens try to construct that, that tall tower that reached up in the heavens. And Genesis chapter 11, where we find that story, tells us they did that so that they could make a name for themselves. And then you flip, of course, God disrupts their, their building project. And one chapter later, Genesis 12, we hear God saying to Abraham, 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 I will make your name great. I will do that. Do we trust God to manage our image? Or do we feel like we've got to control that? So an idol may not be something that we worship thinking, okay, this is God. In fact, probably very rarely are we thinking of that as our idol. Oh, this is God. We're slightly more nuanced than that, isn't it? Rather, an idol is something that we turn to in place of God when we don't believe that God is trustworthy to handle the details of our lives. Now, I thought about us in our country, in America. Um, Because each location can be different. In America, do we care about being in control, just generally? I think we do. I think we care about being in control. In America, do we... We care about our image. I think we do. I think we do. And so as I read this story this morning, what I think is I must examine my heart and seek out idols that I am making. Of course, we all have an opportunity to do that, don't we? So this chapter reveals a couple of signs um, for us that something may have become an idol. We've put something in idol status in our life. Um, So we use idols to feel like we are in control, but actually what idols do is they start controlling us. And so I want to look at two ways that idols control um, Nebuchadnezzar in the story. Look for these signs. One, when I am controlled by an idol, I will attempt to validate my idol. 
See, if I'm looking to my idol for my sense of value, I will protect that idol at all costs, won't I? I will defend that idol. Why do you think Nebuchadnezzar demands that everyone worship this statue of himself? I mean, he could have just said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to make this, this, this sculpture, uh, maybe like a monument to myself, but I'll put it in a, in a nice garden area. And if people want to go and admire the beauty of that statue, they can go to the garden and, and check it out themselves. Why not just make it optional? Because he wants to validate that idol. And he demands that people worship it because, of course, that is a way of validating himself. And that's what our idols ultimately do, at least what we hope they will do. We hope that they will validate ourselves. See, the way that idolatry works is that I will either try to get people to support the very idol that I am setting up, that I am worshiping, or I will at least support the same kind of idol worship as mine. So I was thinking about this. Take, take, a, take when someone makes career an idol. If my career is my idol and therefore my identity is wrapped up in my career, then I will at least try to get others to validate my job performance. So that'll be my first attempt. I will, I will boast about my job performance. I will, um, I'll try to impress others. I might, I might use others. In my office, I might, I might throw some coworkers under the bus, perhaps, um, as a way to um, protect my, my job performance image. That will be my first mission. But if I can't do that, I will at least support others who are also making career their idols. I will see them as go-getters. I will see them as rightly opportunistic. I will see them as savvy. I might even look to them as, as role models for myself. I will also, I will look down on others who are not pursuing the same idol as me. See, we use our idols to try to make a perfect world for ourselves, tailored exactly how we prefer it. We use our idols to try to construct this world, to, to get the world to go in the direction we would want it to go. If you want to identify your idols, ask yourself, who do I look down upon? What are they not doing that I find completely foolish or ludicrous? See, I want people around me to to help build the world that I want. And if they're following the same idols as me, we can do it together. So who do I look down upon? Who do I say, hey, you're not... You're not working along with me to make the world that I want. Ask, could I be making that that thing into an idol? Let me ask you, can religious observation be an idol? I think it can. I think think a religious practice can be an idol if, if we are looking down upon the irreligious. If we're looking down upon them thinking, well, how foolish. Why don't you just get on with a plan? Help make this world the way that I want it to be. And I may have just made my religious practice an idol. I will seek to validate myself and get others to validate me through my idol. Now, we can make good things into idols. You know, career, good health, Exercise, knowledge, religious practice, our Christianity, those are all 
good things in themselves. It can be great things. So how can we tell if we've gone from affirming a good thing to turning that good thing into an idol? So I want to look at, look at the other way that I think we see Nebuchadnezzar being controlled um, in this story. When I am controlled by my idol, I will lose control of my emotions and my actions. That's not the only sign we can look to, but it's certainly a sign that we can look to that maybe we're turning something into an idol if we lose control of our emotions and actions as we seek to validate that idol. Look at verse 19 again. When Nebuchadnezzar finds that, or hears that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to worship the idol. Verse 19 says that Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. It actually says that he is filled with fury. Uh, The writer of this uses that word filled one other time in this book of Daniel, and it actually occurs in chapter 2, when it says that this rock that hits the, the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream That rock becomes a mountain. Remember, the rock represents the kingdom of God. That rock becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. Roddy uses that same word fills to describe how much fury was filling Nebuchadnezzar. He was filled with fury. He loses control. Then impulsively, what does he do? Heat up that furnace. I mean, that furnace, I'm certain, was very sufficient in taking the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the way that it was. He says, I want you to heat it up seven times hotter. And what happens when he does that? Well, he has some of his strongest soldiers. Did you recognize that in in chapter 3? Not just some of his soldiers tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but but he has some of his strongest soldiers tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And because Nebuchadnezzar lost control, and impulsively had them heat the fire up seven times hotter than the normal, well, then his soldiers die in the process as well. You have this narcissistic king losing control, doing foolish things, and when that happens, you can bet there's going to be a lot of collateral damage, and so there is. See, losing control in our temper are signs of an idol in our life. They are signs we have lost sight that there is a God who is in control, and we are acting like the world is entirely up to us. So do you believe that there is this good God that is in control? And if so, what would we expect about our life? if this good God is in control. Well, let me tell you, there, it is true that there are times that God has us go through difficulty and suffering, and for good reason, because it's during those times of difficulty and suffering that there is real growth in our life. But let me tell you, if you don't believe that apart from anything that you do, there's this great God that is ruling the heavens and the earth, and he will bring great good and blessings into your life apart from anything that you do, then you are not believing in the God of Christianity that we see in the Bible. He is our great God. 
who delights in blessing his children. And when you know our great God is in control, it gives you the power to demonstrate true control. So let's look at verse 16. This great statement that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your uh, your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. I mean, here, just defiance in Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, don't you? They said they will not do what Nebuchadnezzar was ordering them to do. They refuse to be controlled by him. See, chapter 3 shows us who really is in control. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. So how do we become free of idols? Well, true power and control in our life only comes through God. Uh, there's this famous phrase that Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you will be my disciples, and then you will know the truth. And then what will happen? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew some great truth about this great God. And because of that, they just weren't impressed by this statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Because of that, they weren't intimidated by the threats of Nebuchadnezzar. They just knew Nebuchadnezzar was using the statue to prop himself up, prop his empire up, and they're completely unimpressed and unintimidated. Why? Because some other vision was filling their heart. Some other vision of theirs was inspiring, moving their hearts. See, in order to fight against idolatry, you have to have this vision of something much greater, much more inspiring that you will want to live for and die for. So fight idolatry through a great vision of the kingdom of God. When I was thinking about that, a story, a part of a story came to my mind um, from the Chronicles of Narnia, the, one of the later books, in it, The Silver Chair. And it's my favorite part in, in this book, in that, that little novel of C.S. Lewis. Uh, the, the hero characters in this scene, they're, they're under the enchantment of the Green Queen, and she, she's really the white witch in disguise, the, the Green Queen. The, the queen of the, of Underland. And, um, so they're, they're in Underland. They're, they're below the ground. They, they, they're losing sight of the real world of Narnia above. They're under the enchantment of this queen. And her enchantment is, is causing them to forget everything that they know about the real world above. Their faith in the real world Narnia is fading, in other words. Will they succumb to the enchantment that the dreary underland is all that there really is? Will they believe that? And the witch kind of chastises them in the scene, saying, listen, you're, just, you're being like a, a bunch of little children, just make-believing in this, this play world of yours, this Narnia play world of yours. Put away your childish tricks, she says. 
Now, one of the one of the hero characters, his name is is Puddleglum, um, and he's kind of this human, kind of duck-like creature um, who musters up all of his senses under this enchantment, and he counters the queen, and he says, "I'll just read a little bit from the story." So, okay, okay, I, I hear him saying, "Okay, queen." Uh, suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things of Narnia, the, the, the trees and the, the grass and the sun and the moon and the stars and, and Aslan himself. Of course, Aslan is the lion Christ figure. Suppose, suppose we have done that. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours, the underworld, is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one, and you mention us acting like babies. Four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. In other words, our four babies in our imaginary world makes this real underworld look like nothing? That's why, he says, that's why I'm going to take a stand by the play world. Of course, speaking of Narnia, I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. And then he says, we're leaving, and we're going to spend our lives looking for overland, the real world above. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. So to fight against idolatry, you have to have this vision of this greater world, this greater kingdom of God in your heart. That vision that makes everything else, the, the, the natural world without God, just look completely unimpressive. The natural world without God, Nebuchadnezzar and his 90-foot statue, huh, who needs that? Because we have this vision in our heart of the, the true kingdom of God. And it lights our heart on fire. So, we need this, this true vision. Not just of the natural world that we see around us, but the natural world that we see around us that is filled with God's presence and his kingdom. See, at the end of the story, of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. We have this, just the, the amazing scene, right? That's in the furnace where they're in it. And then there's the fourth man in the fire with them. Who is that fourth man? Well, you can look to commentary after commentary, Bible scholar after Bible scholar, and you'll hear various things. Things Is it, is it an angel, really? Or is it, is it really the pre-incarnate Son of God, Christ himself. Let me tell you why I believe that it was Christ who was in that fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because that's the only suitable bookend for the belief stated in Daniel chapter 2, verse 11, that the gods do not dwell with people. So that's that purely natural worldview. And God says... Oh, yeah? I don't dwell with my people? Just watch. And he himself, as the person of the Son of God, 
reveals that he does indeed dwell with people and protects them. And Christ in that fire absorbs the deadly heat and destruction of the fire so that we won't have to. And in the end, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are the ones who have freed themselves from idols. Not because they just exercise willpower. That's not how they do it. But they have this greater vision of God and his kingdom and his power in their hearts. And so they were free of even perhaps the the most common idol to us, and that is our very lives in our sense of comfort. See, they did not pull back even when faced with suffering or even the loss of their own lives. And we know people like that, don't we? We know people like that. who live with this vision for the kingdom of God. They don't let things bother them. They aren't motivated as much by wealth and accumulating money. They share their faith because they're crazy about talking about Jesus. Loss doesn't sink them. We know people who have that vision of God's kingdom in their heart. And in the end, Nebuchadnezzar praises people like that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they did not seek to preserve their own life at any cost. So last verse that we read, verse 28, remember what he said. Praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They trusted in him and defied the king's command. And they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. And that might remind you of something that Jesus says. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, my sake, will save it. So I'm going to ask you this morning, what are you living for? Are you living so that you can make your mark in this world, either in this fairly large way, the 90-foot statue, or just kind of try to make as much of a mark as you can. Is that what you're living for? Avoiding pain and suffering and pursuing pleasure? Is that what you're living for? Trying to create the best world that you know how to make? Is that what you're living for? If so, then that dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that offers a great image of all of those things, just things turning into dust and blowing away in the wind. It's all temporary. Or have you given yourself over to something great? God and his eternal kingdom where you will keep your life. You will be saved forever and ever. As we close with a a moment of silence and prayer, I just want us to think about possible idols that we've constructed. Where do we find ourselves looking down on others, trying to validate something that we want to affirm so strongly? Where are we losing temper, control? Where are we trying to 
have control over how others see us. These are some of the things I want us to look for in our hearts. And then I want us to be open to this greater vision of God and his glorious kingdom where he dwells with his people, where he dwells with you. Will you pray with me? Lord, you have made us to long for the eternal. You have made us to seek ultimate significance, and we pray that you would lead us to the only one that will truly satisfy the longings of our hearts, and that is you. Help us to see where we have substituted other things for the security the satisfaction, the the pleasure that we receive in you, the the, the sense that our world is in a right place. Or we know that you love us and you are moving us according to your good plans. And so we don't have to feel like we need to be in control. Help your, help your kingdom to, to burn greatly in our hearts. Your glory, your praise, your honor, your holiness to burn in our heart so that we, we will live and be willing to die for you and you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.